This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We mentioned on last week's show that um, here at KDVS, the Saturday Morning Folk Show celebrated its 35th anniversary. We refer you to a great article in the Davis Enterprise by Jeff Hudson and hope to speak with Jeff later in today's program. For that uh, special event a couple weeks back, the current hosts Bill Wagman and Robin Fox were joined by the show's founder, Stephen White, and former hosts Rich Ellis, Peter Helmuth, Jim Veet, Hiram Jackson, and Peter Schiffman. It's quite a remarkable thing to do uh, that much time on a community-based station, so we're going to devote our second segment today to talking about that. But let us begin our program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in today's case is the 8th of December. It was on December 8th in 1851 that Pope Pius IX proclaimed the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, a massively misunderstood concept even among Catholics. It very definitely does not indicate that the birth of Jesus was to the Virgin Mary, but instead notes that Mary, mother of Jesus, was free from original sin. That concept that all human beings are born with original sin thanks to Adam and Eve screwing up in the Garden of Eden. Pope Pius IX declared that Mary was free from original sin from the moment she was conceived, which in this correspondence opinion has to rank right up there among wacky concepts. I'm kind of sorry to recall those days back in catechism in my youth when people tried to convince me that I was born with original sin thanks to, <laughs> thanks to Adam and Eve falling victim to a talking snake. And by the way, isn't it time we quit slamming women over the supposed frailties of Eve and being persuaded by a snake in a garden? This would be a good one not to digress upon. Kind of a red-letter day for electronics, December 8th in the year 1931, a U.S. patent was issued to American inventors Lloyd Espenscheid and Herman Affelt for coaxial cable that, with its ability to carry a wide range of transmission frequencies simultaneously, is widely used today for television and high-speed internet connections. Ten years later, December 8th, 1941, one day after the surprise Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, the United States formally entered World War II when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed Congress, describing the previous day as a date which will live in infamy. Great Britain also declared war on Japan the same day. And one year later on this date, December 8, 1942, FDR and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill issued a declaration signed by representatives of 26 countries calling for the United Nations. And finally, on December 8th, 1991, 20 years ago today, the Soviet national government was declared dead by Russia, Belarusia, now known as Belarus, and Ukraine. They would temporarily forge a new alliance, which was for a while known as the Commonwealth of Independent States.
Our quote of the day comes from the aforementioned Winston Churchill. And I kind of like this one. Said Churchill, I am fond of pigs. Dogs look up to us. Cats look down. Pigs treat us as equals. Our quote of the day comes from Robert Heinlein, who said, Progress isn't made by early risers. It's made by lazy men trying to find easier ways to do something. All right, our jokes of the day comes from AmazingJokes.com, which notes that you may be a college student if... I think we'll do six. Number one, your idea of doing your hair is putting on a baseball cap. You might be a college student if you consider macaroni and cheese a balanced meal. You might be a college student if you've ever written a check for 45 cents. Here's one I especially like. You might be a college student if you haven't done your laundry in so long that you're wearing your swimsuit to class. Also, you might be a college student if you live in a house with three couches, none of which match. And finally, you might be a college student if you've ever price shopped for Top Ramen. Our stats of the day come from Mental Floss Magazine, a section on Is More the Merrier? Trying to assess the correct numbers for things. How about 1,000 being the ideal number of people for a survey? Magazine notes the Gallup organization only surveys about 1,000 people per poll, even for nationwide surveys. Doubling or even tripling the sample size is expensive, and it doesn't significantly change the results. I think we'll do four of the five of these. Uh, is more the merrier. Five, apparently, is the ideal number to have in a work committee. According to the Wharton School of Business, to get the most work out of your employees, five is the perfect number for a committee. More than that, the members start forming sub-clicks and begin social loafing. Asking is more the merrier, the number seven comes up, believed to be the magic number for a jury. Magazine notes, here's the reason those 12 angry men were so angry, because only seven of them were needed to be there. According to a University of Glasgow study, juries of 12 are ineffective because a few blowhards will end up dominating the discussion. Seven's a better number because more people feel comfortable speaking and they have an easier time reaching a unanimous decision. Boy, there's a stat for the American crazy judicial system. And finally, asking is more the merrier, 150 comes up as the perfect number for your social network. Magazine asked, if you're feeling guilty about unfriending your ex-boyfriend's softball coach on Facebook, you shouldn't be. According to Oxford anthropologist Robin Dunbar, you can't handle more than 150 friends. The human brain wasn't built to keep track of more people than that. Facebook users, take note. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for fish stories. After Massachusetts fisherman Carlos Rafael accidentally caught an 881-pound tuna in his trawl gear. When he reported the catch, worth up to $400,000 on the sushi market to fishery officials, they seized the giant tuna and told him he'd broken the law because he hadn't used a rod and reel. 
We can only hope that tuna didn't go to waste. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for typos. After James R. Butler of the Derby, Connecticut Finance Board was listed on an election ballot as James J. Butler, his son. Officials say that James J. Butler won the election and should be sworn in. Said Butler, my son wants nothing to do with this. And it was an ugly week for computer security last week after a software security firm isolated the 25 worst passwords to use online. These included 123456, QWERTY, Let Me In, and the worst of all, Password. Let's do a couple of health items which come to us from the week. Probably should do more health stories on this program, being a practicing physician, but you know, it's hard to get them right. As far as I'm concerned, a lot of the political topics we talk about and science topics we talk about are certainly about health, just indirectly. But here's a couple of shockers. Shocker number one, being smart may make you more likely to take recreational drugs, not less. New research from the UK shows that girls between the ages of 5 and 10 who score in the top third on IQ tests are more than twice as likely to try marijuana or cocaine by age 30 as their lower scoring peers. And boys with impressive test results are more than 60% more likely than their classmates to sample multiple illegal drugs as teens and adults. Said at Cardiff University's James White, it's not what we thought we'd find. Since previous studies have shown brainy kids are more likely to forego cigarettes and to lead healthy, active lifestyles as adults. But experimenting with narcotics may be especially tempting to smarter kids who are also more prone to boredom and more willing to experiment and seek out novel experiences, said White. Of course, another possibility is that intelligent, health-conscious people may believe they're too smart to become addicts, so they feel free to try out drugs. And uh, alarming item number two, apparently the hormones found in birth control pills could be polluting the water supply and increasing men's risk of prostate cancer. At least that's a suspicion of Canadian researchers who found that countries who have the highest percentage of women using oral contraceptives also have the highest rates of men with prostate cancer. Women who take birth control pills excrete estrogen from the medication in their urine which is recycled at sewage treatment plants and returned to the environment. Previous studies have shown that estrogen-like chemicals found in pesticides and plastics may cause a wide range of health problems, including prostate cancer. Low levels of those substances, called endocrine disruptors, are increasingly ending up in our water systems, suggesting that we can't count on our wastewater treatment plants to remove them. Well, they're not even trying. Apparently, Faye de Leon, a researcher at the Canadian Environmental Law Association, told the Toronto Globe and Mail that while this study doesn't establish cause and effect between birth control pills and prostate cancer, it drives home the need for further research into whether estrogen is passing from women into water supplies. It's a a little-known fact that a very high percentage of everything you take in the way of medications winds up going down your toilet because you excrete a lot of it unchanged. In fact, it's been noted that the technology has existed for a very long time to start at sewer lines and work their way back up to your house if someone was interested to find out uh, where the drugs were coming from.
Speaking of disturbing water issues, I want to refer to November 2nd issue in the Sacramento Bee by Loretta Kalb, titled, Use Less Water? Okay, Pay More. Now, it's the article, it doesn't seem fair, and to some it doesn't make sense. If you're worried about water bills and you use less water, you should get a lower bill, right? Well, that's apparently not what's happening at the Carmichael Water District. The district announced it wants to raise water prices 18% starting January 1st, on top of an even bigger rate hike already imposed through mid-2014. The reason? The reason? Water use in the district has fallen below the historical average by an astonishing 25%, thanks to a mild and wet weather year, foreclosed homes, and ratepayers using less water because of rising water bills. With the cut in use, the water district's revenue has dropped sharply. And notes the article, since uh, these water districts have some fixed costs, less water use means you now have to pay more. Article cites John Woodling, executive director of the Regional Water Authority, a joint powers agency that represents water providers in the Sacramento region, calling it a catch-22. We're trying to push the customers to be more efficient in their water use, he said, but we have to balance that with keeping our operations running. Speaking of catch-22, to change the subject rather dramatically for a moment... This year marked the 50th anniversary of that uh, remarkable book by Joseph Heller, later made into an intriguing but somewhat imperfect movie. Interesting article about it a few months back in Vanity Fair titled The War for Catch-22. It was still an enormously popular paperback when I was in college back in the 1970s, and uh, its anti-war message seemed to resonate in the Vietnam War era. If you've never read it, I recommend you do so. Maybe the most uh, single interesting part about the book is how the term Catch-22 basically worked its way into the national language. As the book explained, Catch-22, a supposed regulation, specified that a concern for one's own safety in the face of dangers that were real and imminent was the process of a rational mind. A bombardier would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't. But if he was sane, he had to fly them. And if he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to. But if he didn't want to, he was sane, and then he had to. Yosarian, the main character, was moved very deeply by the absolute simplicity of this clause of Catch-22. At some catch, that Catch-22, Yosarian observed, the best there is, Dr. Nika agreed. And eventually the American Heritage Dictionary sanctioned the term, defining a Catch-22 as a difficult situation or problem whose seemingly alternative solutions are logically invalid. Another interesting aspect of the article was that to Joseph Heller, the author was himself an advertising man, and his uh, savvy in that area certainly helped in the marketing of that book. And one area of marketing that is not very savvy, we refer you to the Sacramento Bee Monday, November 22nd article, is how they are choosing to advertise marijuana dispensaries. I'm sure you have noticed, dear listener, that various ads out there for dispensaries touting the benefits of cannabis as an aid to promote good health seem to have a rather profound number of good-looking women in skimpy attire. Noted the article in the B by Peter Hecht, who's been covering the cannabis issues in California. Various ads from marijuana magazines illustrate the sexual imagery that is sometimes used to sell medical cannabis, a tactic that some believe undermines the medical rationale for the drug. 
Heck notes in the article that 15 years after California voters legalized use of medical marijuana amid images of ailing AIDS and cancer patients, pot dispensaries featuring bikini bud tenders suggest a different message, pot as a recreational pleasure. The article quotes Lynette Davies, a Sacramento dispensary operator, saying, I've often said how offensive it is that we have naked girls with cannabis leaves or mini, mini, mini skirts. That has nothing to do with medication. Davies, whose family runs the Canna Care Dispensary, says the article, said some in the industry believe there's more money marketing to recreational marijuana users. That's not what people voted in. That's not why we're supposed to be here, she said. Ryan Landers, a Sacramento AIDS patient who leads a medical marijuana policy group called the Compassionate Coalition, said trade shows featuring hot kush girl contests and spicy ads make my job a hell of a lot harder to convince people that what we're doing is true and real. The article notes that at the HempCon medical marijuana trade show last month in San Jose, the event's own marketing director took exception When she passed a booth for a magazine called Cali Chronic X, it features semi-nude models posing suggestively with pot and exotic smoking accessories. And uh, some other PR-related issues. There's a a problem down in Los Angeles related to some parents filing complaints with the PTA in Compton after a former adult film star said she read to children at a classroom at an L.A. County elementary school. Apparently, Sasha Gray, age 23, described as an an ex-porn actress who has appeared in mainstream shows like HBO's Entourage, was a guest earlier last month at Compton's Emerson Elementary School for Read Across America Day. Gray apparently tweeted on November 2nd that she spent the day reading to students at the first and third grades. KTLA-TV quoted parents questioning whether it was appropriate to have Gray at the school. There's a local connection to this. Sasha Gray apparently was born and raised in Sacramento. She's not appeared in porn films for over two years. She's been a regular on the mainline TV show Entourage and has appeared in the 2009 film The Girlfriend Experience. I guess this is a bit of a PR problem. My question would be that if you brought in, um, say, a special forces member of the military who'd been trained to kill, and his job was to go on clandestine missions and, and kill on various uh, military operations, would there be the same outcry from parents complaining to the PTA if such an individual was reading to elementary school students? I don't think so. All right, and final item related to PR, at least sort of related to PR, is the fact that uh, a lot of us think the web is making us smarter. Well, maybe not. Article in Wired.com by Clive Thompson notes that uh, young people are supposedly our most web-literate citizens, but if you ask how savvy they really are, it turns out it's really not very. They apparently just swallow whatever they find on Google. To study kids' online search skills, scientific researchers asked a group of students to look up answers to a series of questions. Not surprisingly, kids relied on web pages at the top of Google's results list. When researchers switched the order of results, most students were easily tricked and relied on the falsely topped-ranked pages. Other studies have shown that students really don't bother to assess the credibility of information found online. Is an article a disguised advertisement? Was that profile of Martin Luther King actually posted by white supremacists? 
The average high school and college student is unable to discern the hidden agendas. Notes Thompson, this naivete is largely the fault of schools which rarely teach critical thinking. He notes, and mastering crap detection 101 isn't easy. You need to be savvy about the world and how it works. Ultimately, a broad-based education is the only true key to effective search, he says. And on that rather scary note, let's take a short break. Actually, I'm not sure we can end with that. we got to end with something a little lighter than that, don't you think, Mr. McMillan? Yeah. Well, doggone it. We know Dave Barry's there for us. And I'm sorry to say I'm running out of the, the Dave Barry calendar for 2011, which has been a rich source of material for this program. The Tuesday, November 29th entry was as follows. Homestead, Florida is a nice all-American town, although it's the only town I know of where a citizen's crime watch meeting was disrupted by falling cocaine bales. Really. The bales had been shoved out of a low-flying plane being pursued by federal drug agents. One bale nearly hit the Homestead police chief. Said Dave, stuff like that's always happening in South Florida. Let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's come back and talk about 35 years of a remarkable program on KDBS. Yeah. 